You're not wearing a trust me shirt. That's, is that not a trust me shirt? This is a trust me shirt. All college shirts are trust me shirts. Oh, all college shirts are trust me shirts. I thought it was wearing... white college shirts. Uh, Look at Those are supremely trust me shirts. We're but, all wearing trust me shirts. But no, everything is a trust me shirt. It's <clears> just <throat> trust me t-shirts. They're then t-shirts, not trust me t-shirts. No. Especially t-shirts. I think all my t-shirts have two short sleeves. Makes me look like an overgrown child. I'd hope they'd have two short sleeves, not just one. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't even get through it. Great joke. Is it recording? That's good. Yes. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the TLDR podcast, where I, Zach Michaelis, am joined today by TLDR UK's lead writer, Ben Blissett. Is yeah. that your official title? Yeah, it's one of them. One of the yeah. many. And our other writer, Rory. Thank you. Sorry. Yeah, other writing. I don't know. What, is there a formal? Do you have a title? No. You're sort of nominally the global do. lead. I'll oh, give you that. No, I'll take that. Yeah. Okay. Sure. Yeah. Have you just been given a promotion, promotion? Yeah. on the podcast? Yeah. 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 Amazing. Um, There's so, no increase in pay. No, it's just uh, obviously experience. Pay and experience. Yeah, it's good vibes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so today we are going to be mostly talking uh, about the ongoing Conservative Party conference here in the UK. Um, but before we get into that, as is custom on this podcast, we are going to do a little section on the underreported story. So we're all going to share what we consider to be an important but unreported story this week uh, and explain why, well, it's interesting or why we think it should be better covered. Um, so would you like to start with the recently promoted Rory? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, and in, actually, it's not really a global story, it's a European story. I'm going to Greece for my underreported story, where uh, the main opposition party which is a left-wing party called Syriza I think that's how you say it Syriza Syriza I mean they'll correct us in the comments um, I'm going to say Syriza okay, that sure. feels more natural to me Go for it. Um, they had an election recently uh, to replace their, the leader of the party um, following the general election in Greece where they lost pretty badly I mean they still came second but they lost quite a lot of seats to the conservative ruling conservatives there um, and Syriza is, is it kind of grew out of the uh, you know anti-austerity movement kind of quite hard line against like the European banks and that type of thing. They're they're, they're kind of like a known as a strong left-wing force, and they kind of yeah. inspired other European movements and things. But they just elected uh, a new president who has no political experience. He's 35 years old and is from well former Goldman Sachs banker yeah. who lives in the US. Came out of nowhere to win the election. Is, is, why do you think it's unreported? Do we think it's unreported because it marks like a change of politics for Syriza? Yeah, I, I think it's, yeah, you've got the impact on the party itself, which I think is just interesting. Yeah. Um, and also, I think you can probably, I don't have any parallels to draw to existing other people, but I think I think there is a there is this kind of movement now where people from outside of politics just feel like they can jump in mm. and and do it, and and they do get elected in these. I mean, he's not the prime minister, but he's going to try and be prime minister. But if he can, if an ex-Goldman Sachs banker can be elected to lead Greece's like premier left-wing party, then do we know anything about his do politics? It. Do we know if he he's is left-wing? He's vague about it. I mean, he he's talked about how his experience inside the capitalist <laughs> world has kind of informed his views. It's an um, interesting way to try and explain yeah. why you should be the leader of a left-wing party. Yeah, um, but I think at this stage, you know, we. People don't really know what he's going to do with the party. Um, he says he wants to. Kind of, he says he is the person who can uh, defeat the uh, New Democracy Party, which is the ruling kind of Conservative Party. 
from what I've seen, lots most people don't seem to know exactly what his policies are, or what he wants to do. So we don't know if he's going to be successful or not. In, but in it'll a be way, interesting. it feels it feels quite Italian because yeah. in Italy you get lots of quite radical left and mm. right wing parties who are sort of like subsumed by technocrats. Yeah, um, and I think some of it comes down to the fact that. Unfortunately, more radical economic ideas in the context of the EU just bump up yeah. against the sort of like the, the hard fiscal and monetary constraints of being in a sort yeah. of currency union, in I mean, the, of being in the EU. That and is so, what happened when Syriza came to power. You yeah. know, they were very anti austerity, but then were effectively forced to accept these terms from, from the European Union. Yeah. Because you, I mean, just measures. leaving the currency union just isn't really, yeah. it's just not yeah. really an option. So um, The other interesting thing about him um, is that, well, firstly, he's not even a member of parliament at the moment. And has spent the last two decades, I think, living in the US. God, I should have run for this election. Yeah. <laughs> <Look at that. laughs> um, Next he, time, he volunteered on the Joe Biden presidential campaign, not the 2021, but the 2008 one, which was very unsuccessful. Um, so he's got that background, I suppose. Mm. But um, yeah, we'll see how he does. God, that's quite an astonishing story. Yeah. Uh, congratulations to you. That, well, that was and good. And to him. Yeah. yeah and to him. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, Benjamin. Well, um, as is customary, I've gone for a, a UK one, yeah. uh, which I think is probably going to happen quite a few more times. Um, so this week is the Rutherglen and Hamilton West by-election. It's not really been covered in the, the news yet, uh, but it is actually quite a significant by-election because the results are going to be seen as an indication of what's going to happen in Scotland at the next general election. So obviously the SNP has been dominant in Scotland uh, roughly since about 2010. Uh, I, you know, I think it was either 2010 or 15, they won 57 of the 50, uh, of the 59 seats in Scotland. Was that Ob many? Yeah. Wow. Uh, obviously, in 2017, it was reduced quite significantly. The Tories made gains there, but they got quite a few more back in 2019. Um, and at the next election, it's been suggested that Labour could actually re-establish a foothold in Scotland. Uh, and when Labour has got a foothold in Scotland, it tends to do quite well in general elections. It's only really because of Scotland in... Um, a variety of elections, so so Wilson and in some of the new Labour governments, that they were able to uh, win uh, as as much as they did. Um, so it is it is seen as quite a significant by election for that reason. Um, so the specific of Rutherglen and Hamilton West, it's actually switched between the SNP and Labour in the last three elections, so it's bounced between the two. Uh, so it, it, and it's only got a majority of about five thousand. So, so a swing. When of about, were those elections? And when was the last time it was held by Labour? Um, it was held by Labour in 2017 and okay. SNP in 2019, I believe. Okay. Um, so it only needs a swing of 5% because obviously it has a majority of 5,230, so 5% swing for Labour to win it. And there is suggestions that Labour could well uh, win that. Uh, obviously, the reason that the by-elections come about is it, it was Margaret Ferrier's seat. She was an SNP MP who broke COVID rules. Um, uh -huh. She was then um, found guilty by the police of, I think it was... Um, some reckless conduct. Reckless conduct. Yeah. She was given, I think, 230 hours community service. Then she was uh, punished by um, the House of Commons uh, Standards Committee. Um, and she she was suspended from the House of Commons, which led to a recall petition and she resigned. So, yeah, it's going to be, as I say, it's quite a significant by-election. It's not really been in the news much this week, but no, it will really be. It hasn't, has it? Mm -hmm. No, Because you're no. right, I haven't. We had a lot of by-election chat a couple of weeks ago on fundamental. I mean, you're right, actually, in many ways, less important by-elections. And this one, you're, I think, has been sort of clouded or obfuscated by the party conferences. Hmm. Um, you're, I think it's really interesting, there are two things there. Is one is it touches on this other sort of wider story about the SNP's decline hmm. um, that we, you've done a video on a while yeah. ago. Uh, 
And it also touches on this thing that you, you mentioned in passing, but it's just so important to British politics, which is the fact that without Scotland, yes, it's really hard to see a way to a majority for Labour. Yeah. And the, for you know, 10 years ago, even less, five years ago, it looked like there was a structural change in British politics where with the SNP dominating in Scotland, Labour's best bet was a coalition, really. Yeah. Mm. And the fact that that has, in the space of really not very much time at all, that has that has sort of disappeared. And now a, a straight, full-on majority looks really, really quite possible for Labour, including a majority in Scotland, or at least a plurality, like a, quite a solid showing in Scotland, is quite something. Yeah. It, it's, mm. it's really interesting as well, because the SNP became popular in Scotland because of... Um, devolution so their ability to lead the scottish parliament obviously won over voters and showed them as quite a serious party leading uh, you know a government within the united kingdom and and that was you know devolution was a labor policy yeah. so that then grew the snp they obviously uh, got very big in the 2010s and as you say you know 2010 the conservatives uh, the conservatives won albeit narrowly 2015 obviously and then you know it's been it's been tory dominant since it is very hard to see a world in which Labour can win an election without Scotland. And in, in the past, when they've won elections, it's because they've managed to, to win Scotland and maintain Scotland. It was, you know, it's been very bad for Labour in the last, you know, 10 plus years with the SNP yeah. just dominating there. Mm -hmm. So this, and, you know, considering just how dominant they were, as I say, 57 and 59 seats, I think that was 2015. Um, and to consider that, that they might be absolutely decimated in the Westminster yeah. elections in the next one, it's it's such a fall from grace. Well, I think the problem is just they won't be decimated, but they, they, they could lose 20, 30 seats. Mm. Um, and, mean, yeah, okay, fair enough. Yeah, yeah, I meant as in, like, it still should be, you know, they're still going to win some seats. Mm. Um, but, yeah, I think the other thing, this also points to the fact that I think that a lot of commentators overestimated, like, quite how hard the SNP support was. Mm. And in retrospect, the SNP's, you know, really solid support in Scotland does look conditional or contingent on quite a lot of... Like happy coincidences, you know, you had fundamentally Boris Johnson and Jeremy Corbyn for a bit, neither very neither very popular, and then a succession of quite let's just say like English centric conservative leaders um, that sort of fueled the I was going to say separatists, but that's a bit strong, but fueled the sort of independence mm -hmm. flames, um, and then obviously Nicola Sturgeon, who was a phenomenally savvy political operator. Um, and it just turns out that once she's gone, you know, a little bit of their support sort of ebbs away. I think her being put in the back of a police car probably didn't, yeah, probably help. didn't help. Fair point. Um, yeah. Um, anyway, we're spending quite a long time, so I'll go very quickly on my underreported story. My underreported story uh, is comments made last week by both the U.S. Energy Secretary um, and the U.S. Climate Envoy, uh, John Kerry, is the, the one you might know of, and. Uh, they both made some really interesting comments last week about not just climate and energy, but how that relates to China. Um, and basically, the energy secretary was warning the American public, and I think sort of like the global audience, that without cooperation with China, the energy transition is, is very, very difficult. Um, and even with cooperation with China, there are just massive strategic risks for the US because you're trying to transition to energy sports, like an energy system, the manufacturing of which is dominated by the Chinese. Um, and the, uh, the comments made by John Kerry were about his efforts to sort of cordon off climate cooperation with China from other geopolitical tensions between those two countries. Um, I think that's really interesting because I think maybe like six months ago, there was all this talk about like quite optimistic talk about like decoupling and like we don't need China all that sort of thing. And I thought that was always a little bit too optimistic, especially when it came to climate. And I think that as, uh, you know, as things get a bit tougher and the climate reality is starting to bite and the easy bits of decoupling have been done, uh, I think the political reality is kicking in and it's quite interesting to see like how that happens. Mm. Um, and I think it's fundamentally, you know, honestly, I think it's fundamentally a good thing because I think that the honest truth of the matter is that 
we can't make the climate transition without cooperation from the two biggest climate emitters. So, you know, there you go. Anyway. Uh, yeah, I haven't seen any of that in the news this week. So I think it's another one. No. Yeah, it's a slow burner. I mean, it's not like, you know, all of these massive geopolitical trends, they don't mm. really have like headline moments. No, that's true. They just sort of have like vibes. The vibes are changing. Uh, and you want to just keep an eye on the vibes. Um, that's just like a general piece of advice, I guess. <laughs> Let's move on to the uh, the main story, which is the ongoing Conservative Party conference. So we're recording this on it's Tuesday today. Yeah, Tuesday afternoon. When, did it start on Sunday? It's sort of half yeah. soft launch on yeah. Sunday. Yeah. And tomorrow we have Sunak's big speech. But aside from Sunak's big speech, we've already had quite a lot of stuff going on. So mm. I want to ask you about a couple of things about this. I want to ask you about <clears throat> how you, whether you think it affects the Tory party's electoral prospects and also what it tells us about their internal dynamics. But before we get on to anal- analyzing it, just what's happened? Like what what has been grabbing the headlines and what has been making the rounds on Twitter? So the the, the biggest thing by far and away is um, HS2. So uh, there'd been speculation late last week that the Prime Minister was um, just about to cancel the northern leg of HS2. So it was only, I think it was either last year or the year before, they cancelled the Leeds leg. So for international views, it's like a, uh, almost like a Y-shaped um, uh, new fast rail line that went from London. It branched off to Leeds and then went all the way up to Manchester. They cancelled the, the leg up to Leeds a couple of years ago and there's, there was talk at the end of last week that Sunak would be cancelling the leg up to Manchester. Obviously, it's an incredibly expensive project. Um, you know, the, the, the projected costs uh, are, are, you know, reaching nearly £100 billion at this point, you know, when originally it was, what, £20, £30 billion? You know, it's, it's, it's absolutely skyrocketed the costs. And the expected time for it to be finished is, has now been delayed until about, you know, almost 2040 at this point. So it's a massively over budget, um, behind schedule project. Uh, and the Prime Minister, uh, it, there's obviously huge speculation that he's going to cut that. Now, a lot of news agencies yesterday actually reported that that decision had been made, uh, but the Prime Minister is insisting today that that hasn't been made yet. Uh, so it's looking more and more likely by the day that he is going mm-hmm. to cut that. But every day that he doesn't make a decision, this speculation just grows. And it's it's grown so much that it's actually overshadowing the rest of the Tory party conference. You know, that, you know we, we, all, we all work yeah. in this, we all, we all talk about this, but... It, you know, if you hadn't done research for this podcast, I think you'd struggle to really name many other things that people had spoken about at the Tory yeah. Party conference this week other than HS2. It's, it's wild because obviously the question was what's been the dominant theme of the conference? And it is HS2, but that's not the mm. Conservative delegates and, and politicians that haven't been talking about HS2. It's, they've been actively yeah, trying, to trying to stop people. Avoid it. Yeah. yeah. Um, and you've had, uh, you know, this mini civil war within the Tory Party over, I think, Andy Street, who is the, I think he's a Westminster. Westminster mayor, yeah. conservative. He's basically begging Rishi Sunak not to scrap that leg of HS2. Um, he did a little impromptu press conference about it. Andy Burnham, Labour mayor for Manchester, obviously doesn't want it scrapped as well. So he's been being vocal about it. But it's just, it's not the sign of a, a party in charge when the one thing they're actively not talking about is what everyone else is talking about. And members of their own party are kind of saying, please don't do this. You know? Yeah. It's yeah, not I, a great look. So I think it is very on brand in a way, though, isn't it, mm. for Sunak? Because I think 
there's a, there's a podcast, um, the Coffee House Shots, the Spectator, and I think they've been describing Sunak's politics as trade-offism. Yeah, and he is very conscious of like the economic trade-offs and the cost of everything in a way that Boris Johnson really wasn't. Yeah. Um, and so I, I, I can understand where he's coming from and his thinking here. Like he's clearly seen the big numbers, like 50 billion quid, isn't it? Something like that. Yeah. Uh, and gone, we can save all that and spend mm-hmm. it on something more popular in the short term for, you know, help his electoral cause uh, with the election coming down the line. Um, but the politics of it, for reasons we just sort of allude to, are very difficult because the mm. politics of cancelling HS2, you always have that regional element. Mm. You, know, you have that sort of like levelling up thing and how we're sort of backtracking on that 29-team promise to sort of invest in the rest of England. I and mean, this is like, this is the, the most sort of classic example of investing in the rest yeah. of the UK. You're literally sort of connecting London to Manchester and Birmingham and Leeds. Um, and then you also have this like sense, I think in the public, that this is a sort of national failure, like to spend so much money and then just go, oh, we just can't, we can't yeah. do this. Mm. That That's a, there's a sunk cost fallacy at play possibly there. Like maybe we sh- maybe it is time to get out. But it still feels bad, doesn't it? I mean, yeah. And it's also, it's not like this is an indulgence or something that most other countries sort of don't, you know, our high-speed rail infrastructure is massively behind other countries. I mean, look yeah. at Japan, for example, and, and, and their, their sort of wide network of high-speed high speed rail. I mean, China. China yeah, is, yeah. I, mean, I don't, I don't know how, how many multiples mm, more China has, and it has a GDP per capita of a third of ours. And how quickly they built it as well is the yeah. other thing. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's not like it's, it's an indulgence. It's 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 uh, comparative to other countries. It really isn't it isn't that long. And if you did scrap that northern Manchester leg, you know, at that point, the costs could get, as I say, near to £100 billion for a high-speed rail line that goes just from London to Birmingham. I mean, yeah. it, it, I know that, the, you know, the costs will keep going up and it is, but it's the, 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 view, shit, the yeah. view from quite a lot of people will be just finish it. Just, it is unfortunately, yeah. it is expensive, but it's a necessary thing and we've, we've put all this effort in so far, just get the thing finished. Yeah, I think you're entirely right. I think that will be like the median response, medium voter mm. response, which will be just finish it. You know, you can make all these arguments, trade off but we spend so much money and so much time and it's so necessary, just get it done. Um, but you mentioned as well about, you got some of the pushback from Andy Street. Um, and this does sort of get to a couple of internal disagreements within the Tory party. I mean, there's obviously the regional one, mm. but then there is also this sort of like fiscal, like the difference in, in sort of attitudes to fiscal policy within the Tory party, which is probably best exemplified by Sunak versus Truss. You know, Truss is the big spender. We need to get growth going. It doesn't really matter what the short-term implications are for the national debt. And then Sunak is obviously far more cautious. And they do represent sort of different sides mm. of the Tory party. Um, and I think we've seen, not just Truss recently, but we've seen some sort of speeches from quite, basically quite a lot of different senior Tory politicians where they've been quite clear that they don't agree with Sunak yeah. on all his policies. So can you tell us a bit about any of those? Yeah, so the thing with conferences, if, you, if we take Labour's, for example, that's happening next week, you know, that will be a chance for them to show off their leader, Keir Starmer, and to show the party rallied around him, whereas this Conservative one is the complete opposite. You know, Rishi Sunak's kind of been sidelined. A lot of the ministers who do delivering their speeches at the conference, there's pictures and videos of the crowds there being pretty pretty sparse. And then you look at the, the Liz Truss speech, which is the classic one. Uh, it was packed out, you know, people queuing to see her. There was some, someone wanted to get her to sign a copy of the mini budget. Um, which she did sign. Which she did sign, uh, proudly, I'm sure. Yeah. But... Yeah, it's it's effectively turned into, the conference has turned into a, a, a venue for potential future leaders, I guess, to yeah, kind of yeah. make their case. Um, Set up their stand, that sort yeah. of thing. Yeah, so Liz Truss did a speech, I think, 
uh, I can't remember what her new movement is called, but on the banner behind her, it was Make Britain Grow Again. Yeah. Um, which, pretty horrendous. That is horrendous. Um, but, yeah, it's her whole thing about uh, economic growth. And um, there's reports now that I think 60 Conservative MPs have signed up to her new uh, group in Parliament, which I think is called the... I want to say the Conservative Growth Coalition. I might be wrong, but it's that kind of... I think it is of, that. I can yeah, Google it, but it's yeah, that, I think that it's something along those lines. Um, and, yeah, it's it's just a complete separate... It's almost like a separate event to what yeah. the actual government are doing. And then you've got this weird situation with Suella Braverman where she is in government, yeah. nominally on Rishi Sunak's side, but effectively isn't, making speeches and saying things that really should be being said by a backbencher challenging the government, not by, like, one of the most senior figures in government. Um, and there's a lot of talk about her kind of effectively laying the groundwork for a future leadership campaign, assuming Rishi Sunak loses the next election. I mean, it, it, it really comes across like a party that's already in opposition. I mean, they yeah. are, it's so obvious that they are preparing for opposition. They're preparing to lose the next election. And as you say, it's people setting out their stalls ready to take over when Sunak loses the election. I mean, it, it, it's so plainly obvious. I mean, in, in the very first day, you had Michael Gove, um, uh, you know, saying that the, the government should be cutting taxes, which is something that Sunak quite routinely says we can't do and we won't mm. do. That You know, he, he's quite a senior member within the party. And having is that, Michael Gove in government? I, just, I can't, genuinely can't remember. I, I tried to still, phrase that deliberately. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Sorry to ask the direct I, I question, but I genuinely can't remember. Yeah, no, he is still in cabinet. He is Secretary of State for levelling up housing and communities. Mm. Yeah. Um, I think he's sort of been like, not, I mean, not like a formal demotion, but some of his remit has been removed. But yeah, um, mm. yeah he's still so, in cabinet. And, and so having, having a cabinet minister on the first day, you know, already, uh, you know, pushing forward a policy that isn't government policy, breaking uh, collective cabinet responsibility. This isn't, this isn't something that a, a government in power should be doing. And as you say, over the next few days, it only, it only gets worse. You know, you get the um, uh, Liz Truss doing her speech. Apparently, there were hundreds of people waiting to get yeah. in outside that weren't let into the speech. That's how popular it was. And you have cabinet ministers, I think there was a Grant Shapps one, where there were obviously photos, the, the half the room's empty, they don't try and bunch everybody up yeah. in one corner so that the photo ops don't look too bad. Yeah. Um, it, yeah, it does. It does remind you of that that fact that has always been true about the Tories, but they've been quite politically astute in hiding it. Which is that the Tory parliamentary party and Tory members are just more right wing than yes. Tory voters. They're mm. a lot more right wing on Tory voters. And you know, if you've got an effective leader and you've got good party unity, you can hide that fact. You know, if you're David Cameron, you can keep that under wraps. But when unity really breaks down, that fact just becomes so glaringly. Mm brutal like it's just and you hear some of the stuff coming out i mean i saw david frost i mean i don't even know what his former relationship to the toy party is but he's it's invited just a to lord give a speech. Now, isn't he? i think yeah. i think he was yeah but i think he's trying to become an mp now yeah, yeah there were rumors of that yeah. but he was saying raise pension age to 75 yeah he wants to do more flights instead of trains i mean that isn't that is just a mad proposal, it's isn't just, it? I mean, yeah. That's the yeah. guarantee to lose yourself in an election. Yeah. You're only popular with old people and you say you're going to work till you're 10. Yeah. <laughs> but you can fly to Manchester. Yeah. 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 Um, but, he, but all of this, you know, and as you say, it's interesting you bring up David Cameron as well. When things are good, when you're winning elections, people are very happy to put the, the internal party divisions, you yeah. know, to one side. When things are looking good, you know, they're happy to go, on this occasion, I'm willing to, 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 to let things slide for the sake of party unity. Yeah. But they, it, the, the mood is so negative at the minute and they're so, it, it just seems that they're so 
um, sure that they're going to lose the next election, uh, that they're willing to let these divisions become public and they're, they're ready to try and effectively pitch themselves for uh, Sunak's job because he'll be gone next year. There is a sort of, uh, there's a symmetry here with, with Corbyn and Starmer in that yeah. the reverse has happened for Labour, obviously. Mm. And if you've gone back to 2017, 2019, there was a lot of, you know, basically a lot of people saying what they thought and saying we have to stand up for our um, principles mm. um, and you know it can't all just be about making us electable um, and there was a lot of really apparent disunity in those days and then obviously now you have under Starmer the reverse is true you have a lot of people at least in the prelude to uh, the Labour conference talking about how you know we need to put our sort of ideological differences aside and you know make sure it's a display of unity and all that sort of shenanigans I was going to ask do you think there is a sense though so obviously this feels bad for Sunak you know mm. it's a brutal ex- expression of um, the lack of unity in the Tory mm-hmm. party. But is there maybe a silver lining here in that it sort of reminds maybe the more moderate parts of the parliamentary party quite how unelectable the alternatives are? You know, it reminds your bog standard medium Tory MP that, oh, if I get rid of Sunak, I am going to get trust back or maybe I am going to get Suella Braverman. I don't know because... If they're just looking at the size of the crowds in each room, they might think, well, maybe Liz Truss is the better option, but that would be very naive to, to, very to think very silly that. thing to think. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. I, I do think there is there must be a lot of Tory MPs who just think it is inevitable that we're going to lose. Yeah. Like, you know, what, what, what can they do about it? But um, I don't want to jump in front of Ben's answer there, but I did want to just say on the speeches thing, the presence of Nigel Farage is also another massive thing. He is yeah. there, yeah. sat in the front row, I think, at um, uh, Liz, Truss's, Liz Truss's speech. It's like he's, you know, he was kind of an enemy of the Conservative Party in a way when he was leading UKIP and David Cameron was in charge. Um, but now it's almost like he yeah. has captured the party when you kind of hear what Lee Anderson or Suella Bradman have to has to say about migration or whatever. That's a very visible symptom of yeah. the ideological shift that the Tory party has undergone. Pretty Patel and Nigel Farage, there was a video of them dancing and singing, can't take my eyes off of you. Uh, not just the two of them, it was in a party situation. It was the GB News party, wasn't it? There was, yeah. Wasn't that like a sort of GB oh, News thing? Yeah, because yeah. that's been a whole other undercurrent for the yeah, last few weeks. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, we don't need to go into that now. But <laughs> yeah, it's. I, I do think Nigel Farage's presence is very symbolic yeah. of where the party is at, at the moment. In, in a, do you, yeah, I, I mean... So the original question being, is there some sort of upside for the moderates here? Yeah. Mm. Um, I think possibly, uh, but as they say, the Tory party itself is just so right-leaning and ultimately um, it is usually them that, that decides the successor. So I don't really know how you how, how the, the Conservative Party can change the rules in such a way that they can, they can put a moderate in. You know, the, the last election for leader was quite clearly a way to try and sideline the Tory party membership to get someone that the MPs like in yeah. and without formally sort of, you know, acknowledging that there is such a divergence of opinion between MPs uh, and the party. I, I don't really know how you do that. I mean, Rory, actually, we had this discussion the other day yeah. in the office, which is that um, what is going to be interesting at the next election is that if the Tories lose as many seats as they're predicted to lose, the actual MPs themselves, the, the, the cohort of MPs will be such a different group to the one currently and it, it, it's not really known which way it's going to fall, whether there's going to be... Because at the minute, it's dominated predominantly by sort of moderates, which is shown by the fact that they selected Rishi Sunak rather than Liz Truss. It's not the libertarian faction, which is dominant within the MPs. But after the next election, if they reduce down, say, 100 MPs, 
is it still going to be more, you know, dominated by moderates or will it be more right wing? It, it is going to be a different party within Parliament after the next election if they lose by the amount that they are. So whether that whether there still will be a divergence between the party membership and the MPs isn't known yet. And that is one of the big factors as to which, you know, what, what the leader is that's going to be selected next time. Yeah, we talked about this in some other podcasts, but this, this comes back to this thing about <clears throat> if the Conservatives really do lose a lot of MPs mm-hmm. in the next election... The, the prognosis is so variable, you know, whether or not they can actually survive is, is really an open question. Yeah. And I think that there's a sort of Copernican thinking that assumes that the Tory party are this sort of staple in British politics, that they are this constant. But actually, the European experience has taught us, and I know obviously there's a difference because of different electoral systems mm-hmm. and Europeans generally use PR and we use mm-hmm. the Post. But it has taught us that even establishment parties, if they do really badly, they can be wiped off the face of the earth. I mean, France is like the obvious example yeah. with the socialists. And again, it's a left-wing party. There are reasons that the parallels aren't perfect. Um, but if you know, if you do have one really bad election, it all of a sudden gets very, really tough for you. We do think we're kind of immune from that, those yeah. massive yeah. shifts. And on a, on a smaller level, it does happen in Scotland, you know, the rise of the SNP and then possibly the decline. But... Throughout the last few centuries, it's been conservatives and, you know, I guess Labour, it's only been the last hundred years or so. But, yeah, I feel like that's something we're just not prepared for no. as a country, like a possible complete reset of our politics. I, I, do I mean, there's been, re- obviously, even within this country, mm. Westminster elections has been reset. As you say, the Labour Party's, you know, a hundred and something years old and the Liberals were wiped out in the early 1900s. Mm. Like, it's happened in this country um, See, that was so good. You actually got some of your history knowledge. I, I've been I waiting for that for so <laughs> yeah. long. The collapse of the Liberals has just been on my mind ever since yeah. we started this podcast. I'm glad I've managed to finally say it. Yeah, well done. Um, yeah, that, so I think I think consensus here is that it is bad news for Sunak. In a way, I feel a bit bad for him because I think he was almost making a little bit of progress in the last couple of weeks. I mean, obviously, I don't think any of us agree with his decision to use net zero as a wedge issue. But I think he was making a little bit of political progress there. And there were a couple of polls suggesting that the gap had shrunk somewhat. And I don't think that it is entirely politically futile to sort of use net zero as a wedge issue and also use the question of driving as a wedge issue. I think cars can be politicised. He's really gone all in on the, the war on motorists. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think there's the side of I think actually there's a surprising amount of political capital to be gained there. I think that's probably his best chance of baiting Labour into some unpopular policies and statements. I think the danger there is, not to get too drawn into this, but the danger there is that you end up highlighting the kind of degradation of our public transport system by saying, look, people can't survive without their cars, you know, because they can't get a bus anywhere or whatever. But... Um, I also think it's interesting how he, he he really is shifting to the right in rhetoric and policy, I think, going towards this election. But yet there are still people further to right of him in the party saying, we've got to drop him, we've got to pick someone up who's properly, you know, mm. properly anti-woke, properly right-wing. And I don't know what they think he's doing. Like, I don't know if they think he's not well, I think you know, it's some of it's, genuine about some of it's it about different policy areas, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Like some of it's that Sunak's moving right on net zero and yeah. motorist issues, but, but not the economy. Yeah, yeah, not taxes, True. for example. Yeah. So I think, and I think this this sort of points to this like wider issue, which is that in modern politics, especially in Europe, mm. the left right analytic is breaking down a little bit, and it is quite hard to fit people neatly into those left right boxes yeah. these days. Um, anyway, yeah. So I was just going to say, I think. The, we, we all agree that this is basically bad for Sunak. Yeah. And it reminds everyone that the Tory party is divided um, and that some of them are, are pretty right-wing. Mm-hmm. 
So I think the next bit of the podcast is the predictions. Before we get on to Ivan's favourite bit of the podcast, which is the who's up, who's down, yeah. we have to do the predictions. I think this week, the prediction is going to be about HS2. So I think we've, we've talked about this a little bit beforehand, mm-hmm. and I think there was annoyingly a consensus here. But do people think that HS2 is going to get scrapped? I'm going to let Rory go first because okay. I know what your answer is. Okay. I think Sinek will scrap the... Birmingham to Manchester leg, which yeah. is the one we've been talking about. I think he'll scrap that, but I think he'll he'll make an announce some kind of announcement on another rail connection in the north using the money that we're saving by scrapping uh, HS2. Yeah, yeah. I think it'll be questionable whether that actually is using that money and making up for the lack of HS2 or whatever. But I think he will he will scrap it, but frame it as redirecting the money towards a better project, which I'm sure many people will say is not actually better. Um, I agree. I think he's going to cancel the the um, Birmingham to Manchester leg I think he's going to do his sort of slightly higher pitched slower speaking style and do his whole um, I just think we need to be sensible on the economy you know he's going to do this <laughs> whole sort of you know I just want to be honest with you about our public finances long term decisions yeah what was it yeah That's we need to make the hard line. decisions yeah. now all this and he's going to talk about the economy and how essential it is that we need to scrap it for the good of the economy uh, and try and, and try and use that as a way of boosting economic competence for the Conservatives. So I think, annoyingly, I also think that's the most likely outcome. But to make it a bit more interesting, maybe. Mm-hmm. So I think you think that's like a he's him scrapping is like ninety five percent chance happening. Yeah. Yeah. You probably. I think less than that because I do think there's a world in which seventy, sixty five, seventy. He could, you know, if he if he's decided he's not going to scrap it, he's allowed all this press to build up about always oh, going to scrap, it, and he can say. Guys, it's fine. It's going to happen. But then he but also looks like he's, he's been derailed. pressured into it. I suppose yeah. so. Yeah. And he's derailed the whole conference for, for nothing. I suppose so. Yeah. I think the reason that I don't think it's going to happen is I think that this would actually be quite a big policy. And mm. I think so far he's actually changed the rhetoric on lots of stuff. But I think the, the good example is the net zero stuff. The actual policy changes. I mean, we all mocked him because he said he wasn't doing policies that were never going to happen in the first place. And a lot of the other policies were actually things that were going to come in to force in however many years' time. Mm. Um, so, so you think he's going to scrap a non-existing leg? So he's going to say that we're scrapping the Manchester to Glasgow leg of uh, <laughs> HS2. <laughs> but I, what I really think is that actually he likes to talk a tough game and he likes to sort of pitch himself as like, I am sort of pragmatic yeah. and I am all that sort of thing. But I think that actually when it comes to big policy announcements, I think he might well backtrack. This takes us onto the, the last and most exciting bit of the podcast, which is the up and down. Yeah. World leader leaderboard. World leader leaderboard. Yeah. <laughs> is that what we're calling it? Now? I think we've called it that once and then we have World leader leaderboard. Each, each week. Okay. okay, so we have the leaderboard here. Wow. Um, I think, given that, Rory, you've gone first in most things so far, I think it. True to form. Let's oh, continue with that. Sure. So, sorry. Yeah. Do you think do you I was going to say Ben should go first? Yeah. Now? I thought you were going to be generous. No. Yeah. Not at I all. did as well. Um, do you want good or bad first? Uh, let's go. Let's go bad and finish on a high note. Okay. My bad week is. I think this will be uncontroversial. I've moved in before, but I'm moving him in the opposite direction now. I'm taking Vladimir Putin down a step. Oh, where is he? So that okay. is interesting because oh. I have to say now I also have Vladimir Putin going down. Well, if so I explain if, my reasoning, we'll see if we've got the same logic. Um, oh, no. Wait a second. No. I have Vladimir Putin going up. Oh. Interesting. Oh, okay. that is interesting. Well, well he, let's, let's see. For we'll now, he's going down and we'll see what happens. But uh, bad week for Vladimir Putin for two reasons. One, um, Kazakhstan, President of Kazakhstan recently said he would ensure that Kazakhstan is not allowing kind of 
sanctions on Russia to be bypassed through Kazakhstan. And he also said he'd up uh, oil um, supplies to Germany. That's one thing. So they kind of... We talked about this in a... It was a daily discussion, discussion episode discussion. Nebula, saying how the region... Central Asia Central, as a whole yeah. is sort of pivoting away from Russia. Yeah, so that's one reason. And this is... Uh, the second reason is kind of similar. So this happened like earlier today, and I didn't see it until just before this podcast, but the Armenian parliament has voted to uh, effectively join the International Criminal Court, meaning that um, Armenia will now be... is subject to the... Uh, the oh, I can't remember what the statute is called, possibly the Rome Treaty statute? of Rome, Rome statute. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it's be- so one thing that means is that it's one more place that Putin can't go without risking being arrested. Um because there's an arrest warrant by the ICC out for him. And the second is just it represents a further kind of shift away for, for Armenia from Russia as their kind of traditional security yeah, guarantor. Yeah. They're moving away from Russia more into the kind of international system, I suppose. Yeah. So that's why it's bad for Putin. No, I, th- I see that. And I think that is part of a long-running and really interesting yeah. story about mm-hmm. how a lot of the sort of post-Soviet sphere is really turning, I mean, sort of unsurprisingly, yeah. on Russia post-Ukraine. Um, so does that mean you now have one to go up? Yeah, do we do all the bads and then we all do... Oh, do we do all I the bads first? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Also, yeah. yeah I, I don't normally host, so there you go. <laughs> it's a better um, bad one. Yeah, um, it's Modi. Modi's going down. Whoa. Um, oh. So I don't know if you have seen the news today, but uh, there's been an investigation launched into NewsClick in India, which is a news organisation uh, that is often quite critical of the government. Uh, and it's highlighted more democratic backsliding by India. So since uh, Narendra Modi took over in 2014, obviously, uh, there's been quite a lot of uh, financial investigations launched into journalistic outlets. Uh, it's just another example of that. Um, so, yeah, that's that's been quite quite transparent this week and has been... Um, it's been sort of globally reported about this uh, this investigation. So I understand it, but I do feel slightly uncomfortable about the fact that arguably the world's most popular politician <laughs> is now the first person to reach the bottom of our list. Yeah, that's. I'm just glad that Putin yeah. is is. I mean, is moving down in a kind of very amoral and apolitical sense. There, you could question whether that move by Modi is uh, good for his political career, for his kind of you know position. Not you know might not be morally good what, to, to investigate. Yeah, new, yeah, new it's like click. cracking down on yeah. dissent effectively. Yeah, it's a good point. I don't, I don't want to say. Will it benefit him politically? Yeah, probably yes. Um, so, yeah, I, I think the moral of this story is don't sue us if you don't want to get bottom of the ball. <laughs> yeah, don't sue us. Yeah, pretty much. yeah. Hopefully, you learn a lesson. Um, that means we're on to people going up. No. Do you have one going uh, down? Oh, I, am I yeah. going to go down? Am I not done that? Oh, I haven't yeah, done that. Yeah, Sorry. Haven't, no. um, my person going down is... And is I'm it also Modi? He hasn't gone on the board mm. yet. My person going down is, I think, somewhat unsurprisingly, Rishi Sunak. Yeah, there he goes. Yeah. And it's for you the know, reasons... Because Putin's going back up. Oh, I see. Um, it's for the reasons that we've articulated, yeah. um, and it's to do with the Conservative Party conference. I thought he was actually having a pretty good week last week, and... There was one poll, it was a YouGov poll showing that there was only a 10-point gap between Labour and the Tories, wow. which got a lot of Sunak aides very, very excited. There was quite a lot of chat on Twitter. Um, and the fact that, you know, the Tory parties, sort of like their vibes at the moment, mm. have just gone back to sort of chaotic disunity. It is kind of hilarious that a poll that puts you in, still in double digits behind is yeah. being celebrated. And, yeah. and just like, Labour never... 
prior to 2019 normally ahead by double digits for a significant period of time. Yeah. The fact that a 10-point deficit is celebrated I've actually never made it onto the board, to be honest with you. Yeah, yeah I, I feel like it's one we that got we, we could have done. William and not Sumo. <laughs> um, anyway, should we do the, the, the up? Yes. Yeah. Okay, you Rory, you want to start? Yeah, yeah I'm... Uh, so this is this is a historic week because we've got our first person at the bottom. We're going to get our first person at the top. Um, I'm moving Joe Biden up to Whoa. the absolute top. Whoa. Um, he has had a good week, kind of because other people have had a bad week. Uh, Kevin McCarthy and the Republicans in particular, yeah. this big fight about um, government funding and you know the US got very close to the government shutdown and that will happen again in about a month's time when they have the same debate. Um, but it's effective. This isn't like a Democrat v Republican fight over funding. It's a Republican v Republican one. So if if that is the the is that if that is how the American people understand it, that can only be good for Biden and the Democrats. Mm. Um, he has largely kind of kept his hands off the the negotiations and the debate over it. So he's been doing some campaigning recently while Republicans have been infighting, and I think it's only good news for him. In yeah, sense. I think one thing that I think has been sort of underreported is the fact that Gavin Newsom, mm. in the last month or so, has basically said that he's not going to run for president. Yeah. And I do think that Newsom stood quite a good chance. The, the bookies put him on like fifteen percent at one point. Quite a good chance of pipping Biden to the nomination. Um, yeah, I think the other thing I, I think there is this interesting uh, issue here, which mm. is that again, super popular politician, at least domestically, yeah. and quite an unpopular exactly. politician yeah. domestically. And now, top them, we've got to make sure. Yeah. We it's come up to do with popularity, though. The board. No, I know. Although that, that, that's true. Yeah. It, well, maybe it's a discussion for another time. But I was going to say, and just another small reason why Biden's going up is I think I saw Robert F. Kennedy Jr. might announce a third, an independent run for president. He's currently challenging Biden for the Democratic mm. nomination, but doesn't have a chance of that. And even though he's technically a Democrat. I think if he runs independent, True. that's more likely to take votes from the, the kind of Trump side of things rather than True. any from the Democrats. That would be good. I mean, yeah. It would be interesting. A significant third candidate can really, I mean, we talked about this in the videos, but it could make such a massive yeah. difference to this race. Yeah. Given that both Trump and Biden are quite unpopular, yeah. especially going into 2024. Um, okay, Ben. Yeah, so Liz Truss. Liz, she's going up. She's, she's, on, she's yeah. had a good week. She's had wow. a great week. <laughs> I mean, a prime minister that was only in 49 days has been sort of ritually humiliated uh, at the time. Uh, she's gone to conference and most popular woman there, you know, people yeah. queuing, queuing around the block to try and get in. Hundred people, hundreds of people not allowed in, apparently. Uh, shows that she's still incredibly popular uh, in the Conservative Party and that even though she probably will not well, almost certainly, although some people seem to think so, uh, won't run for the leadership again. She hasn't, um, no. She has subtly implied in the yeah. interview that she would. I don't buy it. Um, you don't buy that she would run or you don't buy that she would win? Well, she definitely wouldn't win, but I just, I, I don't think she'd, she'd ever actually um, put herself through running again. But, but her ideals certainly are still um, sort of dominant in the Conservative Party. I, I, so I just think this is clearly someone. Uh, I hope this doesn't come off as too political, but clearly someone with no shame. You know, I think yeah. she would run again. I mean, mm. I think she doesn't. Have, I think I think it's one of those things where at the minute she's seen her popularity this week, and she's seen, and on the back of that, she's implied that she might run again. But I think if you get close to that date, I think she'd very clearly realise that that would be a, a doomed effort. Yeah, well, we'll see. Um, well, hopefully we won't actually ever get to that point. Um, She's also tiny, the little head we've got for her, but... Yeah, anyway. these are not, like, actually <laughs> correct size. <laughs> <They're> <laughs> not size. I didn't mean yeah. that. I meant relative to one another, <laughs> not just in absolute terms. Yeah. 
Yeah, politicians in general, they're all just <laughs> tiny. <laughs> yeah. um, Ooh, I hit the microphone So my one, and we've alluded to this so far, is going to be Putin. And wow. he's going up. And he's going up for, for three reasons. Okay. Um, the three reasons are, the first is that Ukraine aid was stripped from the American spending bill yeah. um, to avert the, the government shutdown. The second is the Slovakia election, mm-hmm. where maybe not pro-Russia, but at least anti-Ukraine, Robert Fisco, how do you pronounce it? I think it? it's Fitzo, isn't it? Fitzo, yeah. won, um, and looks likely to head up a new government. Um, and the third reason is oil prices. Mm. Um, and well, I, as we, there's a video coming out tomorrow, which is about how Russia is struggling with some inflation at the moment and probably doesn't have as much fiscal space as Putin would like. But basically, whether or not Putin can afford not just the war, but anything mm. depends on oil prices, international oil prices. And even though he's selling his oil for a discount because of sanctions and the G7 price cap, he still benefits. And, well, and the Russian economy as a whole benefits. And... Prices have been going up recently. They've gone up from about $70 per barrel, at least measured by Brent crude, um, in July to like 90 today. And no one knows. And I, I, you know, I'm not going to pretend to be uh, sort of a proper like, <laughs> analyst or anything like that. But I think there are good reasons to think that oil prices will actually stay high for quite a long time. A lot of this comes down to the Saudis who have made it clear that, A, they, they want high, structurally high oil prices to fund all their various projects. Uh, and B, they are no longer anywhere near as sympathetic to domestic American mm-hmm. sort of consumer demand concerns um, as, as they used to be. And so I do think that there's a good chance that oil prices remain structurally high for a very, very long time. And that's just, I mean, that really has massive geopolitical implications. And it also is just, it's just terrible news for Ukraine and the West in this respect. Um, and because a lot of our sanctions are focused on trying mm-hmm. to cut off the hydrocarbon revenues for Russia. Uh, and they haven't been, they haven't been particularly successful. Um, so those are my three reasons Putin is going up the board. Um, I think he has moved more than anyone on the board. He initially yeah, came in yeah. at a slightly good one, then he got moved down. Then I just moved him down again, then you moved him back up. So he's he's had a lot of movement. Yeah, I think we feel bad whenever he gets to here. We, yeah, we think that we feel, but I think you have to remember what Ben said, that this is not a reflection of yeah. anything meaningful. Yeah. It's, <laughs> this uh, is just fun. Firstly, it's not any, there's no moral... I don't think I said that, but yeah. It's not a moral judgment we're making on no. any of these people no. and also uh, i mean well <laughs> exactly um and also yeah the, the level of good weeks versus bad weeks it, it, the discrepancy <laughs> is pretty massive we're going to start things people off the board at some point yeah 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 because uh, this is getting a bit chaotic we might we were thinking about potentially introducing a sort of middle tier for people who've gone up and then gone back down yeah um anyway i think that is everything um mm. unless anyone has any really great insights they want to share no, didn't think Definitely so. Not. No. There you go. Um, so thank you very much for listening. And I hope we hope you enjoy not just the sort of the fun of the, the global leader leadership board, but also the slightly, well, let's just, you know, the slightly more academic discussion about the Tory conference. Yeah. So, You're saying that because Jack's not here. No, no, this is not. <laughs> no comparison was implied. I was just saying hopefully they enjoyed the fun stuff and also the less fun stuff. Yeah. Okay. Um, anyway, uh, thank you for listening and hopefully you'll join us again next week. Cool.